This is the Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians, healthcare providers, experts in regenerative medicines, dermatologists. I am Amit Ghosh, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And today we are going to discuss about platelet-rich plasma, which has been found to be effective in regrowing hair. This is a big problem. Today we are going to concentrate on alopecia, also called androgenetic alopecia. And today we are joined by two world-renowned experts, by Dr. Allison Bruce, is the professor of dermatology and dermatology chair at the Mayo Clinic, uh, Florida campus, and Dr. Shane Shapiro, who wears several hats. He's an associate professor of orthopedics and also program director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative Medicine. So let me welcome Dr. Bruce and Dr. Shapiro. Thank you. Thank you. It is uh, the most fascinating thing about your research which caught our attention was a paper that you published on, in the Journal of uh, Dermatological Surgery on 30th, 30th September 2019. I'll draw the attention of our listeners. It's titled, A Randomized Control Pilot Trial Comparing Platelet-Rich Plasma to Topical Minoxidil Foam for the Treatment of Androgenic Alopecia in Women. Now, this is, this is quite new territory, but for many people, but for internal medicine, we are in the front line. We get to see a lot of these patients and they're helpless. A lot of women come uh, with alopecia, especially the androgenic alopecia, and it goes beyond the loss of hair. Uh, it, it, it has completely transformed them, the way they do business, the way they go about meeting their friends. In fact, they avoid friends. They cut down, they make excuses not to go to social events. Uh, they tend to have a decreased opinion of themselves and and that makes them some of them from they get into a frank depression to withdrawal so it is more than just a medical symptom which is extremely bothersome in women but having said that i would like to have uh, dr bruce talk about a bit about what is androgenetic alopecia since you see a lot of them and how big is the problem well, thank you, Ahmed, for that question. And I think you have correctly highlighted uh, the impact that this disorder can have on, on women. It is particularly problematic because it is not unique to older women, although it's predominantly a disorder that we will see in postmenopausal women. We can see it even starting as young as teenage years. We've had patients that are 18, 19 years of age that may have a strong family history of androgenic alopecia and are already starting to notice thinning of the hair. So you are right, it has a big psychological and social impact on these patients. So perhaps just to answer your question, what specifically androgenic or androgenetic alopecia is, um, alopecia is obviously a form of hair loss, and this is a non-scarring hair loss, meaning that the follicle is still preserved, it is not destroyed. Uh, but over time, it's become miniaturized so that the hair doesn't grow as actively as it used to. 
And that sort of manifests then as a progressive thinning of the hair, usually over the top of the scalp in women so that they start to see their part widening, they start to see the top of the scalp and they have to fashion their hair differently, kind of sweeping it over to try and hide that uh, thinning that's occurring. So this is a bit different from the other causes of baldness in women. What are the other causes of alopecia which are not due to androgenetic alopecia? That's a good question because that's always the first thing that we have to try and sort out when we see a woman coming in complaining of, of thinning hair or hair loss. Probably one of the more common disorders that I would want to differentiate is a disorder known as telogen effluvium. And telogen refer refers to the resting phase of the hair follicle. And typically, um, only about 10% of your hair will be in that resting phase. But with a telogen effluvium, this is thought to be a stress response. So for example, after a pregnancy, after a severe illness, high fevers, uh, something of that nature, the hair cycle will shift. And so more hairs will go into that resting phase known as the telogeny phase, and that will therefore manifest as kind of uh, shedding of the hair and uh, thinning. Um, now, the good news about telogeny fluvium is it's usually transient. Once the uh, source of stress has been removed, then the hair cycle will restore itself. So that's, that's one of the things we see commonly. Um, we also have to differentiate, obviously, from a scarring alopecia when there's actually been destruction of the hair follicle due to some kind of inflammatory process. And as dermatologists, uh, we will see those kind of disorders, things like lupus, lichen planus, um, and some of the other scarring hair disorders. And then just uh, probably to close out the, the broad differential, there is also another form of non-scarring alopecia called alopecia areata which is an autoimmune disease where you get lymphocytic inflammation around the hair follicle that causes the hair to fall out. Now, the good news about that um, type of hair loss, that is also um, reversible because there isn't scarring. If we can control that inflammation, um, just like any other autoimmune disease, then typically the hair will regrow. Excellent. So now that we have determined that this patient, my patient has androgenetic alopecia, I sent to you, but a common question which I hear the patient talk sometimes they throw to us in internal medicine is the doctor told me that uh, I don't have a normal hair cycle. So would you tell us what this normal hair cycle is? Sure. I guess understanding the hair cycle is important as we look to therapeutic interventions. But think of the hair cycle in sort of three parts. There's kind of the active growing part of the hair cycle called the anagon phase when the hair follicle is actually growing and extending in length. And that's a fairly long cycle. It's usually three to five years and each particular person will have their own set sort of length of anagen phase. Um, and obviously, if you're one of those people who has really long hair that grows down to your bottom, that usually means that you've got a very long anagon phase, maybe five to seven years longer than the average. And then once the hair is finished in that growth phase, it will enter into a very brief uh, one to two week period of, of um, sort of senescence, so to speak. And that's called the catagen phase. And then it goes into that telogen phase, which is that resting phase. And that's when the hair shaft will actually then fall out while the papilla is then regrowing and getting ready for another growth cycle. And that telogen phase should usually only be about three months. And at any given time, 
only about 10% of your hair should be in a resting phase. So you would have about 10% of your hairs in that telogen phase, whereas 90% of your hair will be in that active growing anagon phase. That's great. So when they're talking about the hair cycle, some patients tell me that 50, whenever I comb my hair, 50 hair come out or 100 hairs come out. So, or when I wash my hair, I can see um, there's a lot of hair uh, in the bath bathroom, and is that abnormal, or is that just part of normal hair cycle? That's another good question because it is actually normal to lose quite a substantial number of hairs per day. Um, you know, working from the premise that we've just outlined uh, that 10% of our hair would be in that telogen or resting phase and therefore falling out, that actually translates to about 100 hairs a day. 80 to 100 hairs a day would normally be falling out. Um, so sometimes when people see a lot of hair, they they may panic unnecessarily. Um, because that is fairly normal to have several hairs falling out a day. Now, just to circle back to the, um, the issue of uh, androgenetic alopecia is what happens there is that growth cycle, that active anagon phase gets shorter and shorter so that instead of growing for that sort of three to five years, it ends up only growing, the hair only grows for, um, you know, weeks to months and then moves into that telogen phase. So you get sort of what we call miniaturization where the hairs are just not growing out and they're becoming smaller and smaller till they eventually disappear and look a little bit like your, your scalp, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. I, I think I've been in telogenic for a long, long time. <laughs> um, but what are the current treatment now, even before your study, before you wanted to do the study, what are the hair restoration uh, treatments for androgenetic alopecia, which is available now, which to all the dermatologists, what are they doing now? You know, uh, there are several treatments that we use. The problem is that none of them are highly effective, and we often have to adjust expectations of our patients. Because this is a, a progressive problem, that one of the first things we want to remind patients is that if we can either slow or stop this getting worse, that's already a good goal in therapy. We don't um, always, we're not always able to necessarily regrow hair. So some of the things that we'll look at, the most common treatment is Rogaine, or otherwise known as Minoxidil, is the, uh, the active ingredient, the drug therapy in Rogaine. And that you can buy over the counter, and that's probably used most commonly by, by patients. And then you can use some of the systemic therapies that uh, kind of work more at a hormonal level, blocking the effects of androgens and so on. Um, those treatments tend to be off-label medications. Uh, one that would come to mind would be spironolactone, which used to be used to treat blood pressure, but it has some anti-androgenic activity. And so we will sometimes use that um, in an off-label indication. And then you probably are well aware that there is a... Um, a male pill that we use for balding called finasteride. And it, there's some mixed data on that, but it, it's possible that that can help in women too, um, although the dosing may be a little different than what we have to use in men. And of course, those systemic medications have potential side effects. There's issues if people get pregnant on these medications. So sometimes the systemic treatments can be challenging, which is why we were particularly um, interested and excited about the idea of using possibly a biologic therapy like platelet-rich plasma to see if we could either slow down or even reverse this process of hair loss and hair miniaturization. So this question is directed to you, Dr. Um, Bruce, or, or Dr. Shapiro, because Dr. Shapiro is also a co-principal investigator. What made you come up with a study? I know Dr. Shapiro being an orthopedics and being in regenerative uh, medicine, 
probably has been called more than once to apply uh, the whole scope of regenerative medicine and treating various, various different uh, issues from, from joint diseases, osteoarthritis. I know there's, there's a huge, huge uh, number of studies coming up, but what made you come up with this study? Was there some pilot studies, some, something which has been done in the past? What, what was the science behind it? Well, um, you're exactly right. Um, there really are two factors um, driving the partnerships that we're pursuing in our Center for Regenerative Medicine when we partner with specialty departments. And uh, the first is we want to take what we've learned um, uh, in our practice thus far, meaning that we have learned uh, from working with cells and with cell-derived products like platelets uh, in orthopedics and orthopedic surgery, uh, and we want to take what we've learned and translate them into other medical specialties. That sometimes will take the form of um, a specialist like Dr. Bruce telling us what their most difficult to treat problem is and how we might use cells to solve such a problem. But in other cases, it's taking a look at what's already going on in medical practice, but maybe without enough evidence and see if we can help provide that evidence. And so in this case, Dr. Bruce had an interest in treating androgenetic alopecia and it has been used somewhat off-label for a year or so prior to when we designed this trial. And our goal was to test the procedure for this particular indication in a more rigorous manner to determine if it really works and if it's uh, appropriate treatment to offer to our patients. So Dr. Shapiro, the question is to you, what is in the platelet which makes it such an effective regenerating device? I mean, you said that it's been used in many other studies that you've done. How come it took us so many years to finally figure out the platelet which is involved in coagulation and all the clotting and not clotting. Um, what made us study this platelet for regeneration? Well, we've been using platelets in uh, medical practice, or I should say platelet-rich plasma um, since the late 90s. Uh, you can even find some early, early uh, references for that. And those applications have predominantly tried to harness the platelet's uh, ability to jumpstart and regulate all phases of the healing cycle. If you look at our early start with platelets uh, in orthopedics and orthopedic surgery, we're thinking about things like chronically torn tendons or ligaments that just aren't healing the way we want them to heal, or even something like osteoarthritis, degenerative joint disease, where cartilage can't regenerate. And if a platelet has the ability, whether through many different mechanisms to help with that healing process, that's what we were after. And the, the actual therapeutic mechanism for different diseases is really still being elucidated, but the common thread um, underpinning all of them is that platelets release alpha granules. And alpha granules come in uh, the billions with platelets. These are biologically active molecules uh, that are sometimes cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, and uh, promote those different phases of the healing cycle from initiation all the way to maturation. And so when you look at whether it's orthopedic surgery or in dermatology or a number of other applications for treatments like platelet-rich plasma, 
That's really what we're trying to harness is the body's ability to heal itself by modulating the healing cascade in all phases. This question is to both of you, uh, Dr. Bruce, Dr. Shapiro. Can you just describe the study uh, which was reported in the Dermatological Surgery September 30th issue, briefly describing what you did and what were the results that you found? Sure, I'll, I'll let Shane speak to some of the details as well, but I, I just kind of want to highlight the good partnership that we have when we work across specialty because as I've already mentioned as a dermatologist we see a clinical problem of women who are really distressed by this condition. Shane in his world has a lot of expertise in understanding how things like PRP can help to you know stimulate hair growth potentially and so there was a study that sort of came across my attention um, looking at PRP in men so Shane and I kind of got together and said, wow, you know, there seems to be a reasonable amount of data in the literature on this being helpful for men, but let's take a look and see if it, it works in, in women, because I think it's even a bigger problem for women who are generally more self-conscious than men might be. And then Shane actually said, well, why don't we take it one step further? And instead of just thinking, you know, does it work? Let's compare it to what people are typically using to treat the condition currently and see if we can draw further conclusions about how it might compare to things, for example, like minoxidil, which I mentioned earlier was sort of the, the starting point of where we would typically treat hair loss. So I'll let Shane to speak, uh, let, let him speak a little bit as to how we set that study up, and I'm happy to chime in as needed. Yeah, uh, certainly please do, because there were a lot of moving parts in this study, and uh, like a lot of things in regenerative medicine, especially when we're trying to figure out, does the treatment work, and not only does it work, does it do as well as standard of care, and then if it does work, uh, at least as well as standard of care, then how does it work? So we try and initially set up these trials as phase one safety and efficacy, uh, sorry, safety trials. Uh, of course, what everyone wants to know is, does the treatment work and can I have it? And so we designed and conducted the clinical trial to try and validate platelet-rich plasma as um, a regenerative treatment to treat hair loss in women and in addition, uh, we wanted to compare the potential success of PRP regrowing hair to that standard of care, um, as Allison mentioned, minoxidil or, or Rogaine. And the way that we designed it as a crossover design, where all patients were to get um, both arms of, of the intervention. And so platelet-rich plasma injections into the scalp was one arm and uh, shampooing daily with minoxidil was the other arm. Uh, they were split into two groups and one group got the platelet-rich plasma injections injected with a very fine needle into the scalp in uh, the region of concern. And the other group got the minoxidil daily and then uh, after a period of three treatments, as the case was in platelet-rich plasma, uh, over the course of eight weeks, then we did a washout to let the effect of either of the interventions, the platelet-rich plasma or the Rogaine, subside. And then uh, all patients crossed over. And so the, the patients in the platelet-rich plasma arm, uh, after the washout, they went to shampooing with Rogaine and the patients that were in the Rogaine arm crossed over to uh, undergo platelet-rich plasma injections on three separate occasions, again, delivered uh, into the skin of the scalp. 
we measured their hair regrowth digitally, and that's one of the unique portions of our study uh, that had not really been done quite as rigorously as it needed to have been up to this point. So uh, we have a high-resolution camera and a software that can digitally count hairs and can measure the hair thickness and the density, and then we were able to compare those two. And we also tracked patients' satisfaction with the two treatments. Essentially, did they like one treatment uh, more so than the other uh, in the form of quality of life surveys. So uh, that's the design, Allison. If I've left anything out, please feel free to add it. No, I think that's a, a perfect uh, summary. Um, I, may, I may just make one slight correction, and it's mainly because I'm a dermatologist, these things matter, but Rogaine is actually a foam that's applied and left on. It's not a shampoo. So um, just, just to clarify that, patients leave it on overnight. But the principle, you're entirely correct, 20 patients in a crossover study, three series of injections versus minoxidil, and then a washout period in between. So what was interesting about the study is that we found that both treatments worked, which is good news um, in the sense that, you know, one certainly wants to know that minoxidil is working because it's been around for many, many years and people use it extensively. And certainly it's, it's been studied and validated. So that was no surprise. We also found that the PRP was also effective in that it did increase the uh, hair count. In other words, the number of hairs in a, a given area that was measured increased. There were some interesting differences in that the PRP seemed to increase the number of what we call vellus hairs, which are the small, relatively immature hairs, and not as much effect on the uh, terminal hairs or the more mature hairs as compared to the minoxidil. And it, it was sort of an interesting finding. And I think to some extent, we think that what happens with that is that vellus hairs are relatively immature and they are being pushed by the PRP to develop into terminal hairs. And um, it probably takes longer than, you know, 12 weeks to, to be able to assess that accurately. And that's why, you know, in clinical practice, uh, what we do is when we administer PRP to a patient, we typically tell them wait at least six to eight months before determining whether, um, whether you think the treatment is effective, because that's really where we start noticing that difference. And that kind of makes sense, because I mentioned earlier on, you know, with any kind of hair cycle disorder or hair growth disorder, you know, you're looking at least three months to switch from one cycle to another. So that's only when you're starting to notice that improvement. I don't think that that was too surprising, but I, I, I think we were glad to be able to validate that PRP does seem to be effective, possibly works slightly differently to minoxidil, which again is no surprise because probably the mechanisms of actions are somewhat different, but they both seem to be effective, which sort of opens the question to, is there value in combination therapy? Um, and I think that that's something that most experts will say, say nowadays is, you know, PRP is definitely a, a nice adjunct to have something additional to be able to offer our patients in a uh, difficult to treat disorder. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you stop other treatments. Uh, you know, if a patient is willing to use minoxidil, you can certainly add to that treatment. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is that PRP, in some extent, is, is sometimes easier for patients than, than something like minoxidil. A lot of patients will tell you it's very difficult to apply something every single day, um, particularly in women where applying a topical foam or solution can, 
you know, kind of affect the way they style their hair and their hair can look wet or not clean and so on. So it, it was nice to see after the um, conclusion of the study that we have another option to offer our patients and that there, there does seem to be some good science to support that it is effective in uh, increasing the, the number of hairs and pushing the hairs towards more terminal hair growth. So if, if I'm a woman um, and I, I come to you and I have androgenetic alopecia, I would like to know, Doc, how many times are you going to inject this PRP? Is it going to be 50 injections? Each sitting, how many times are you injecting PRP? And what are the side effects? Is it painful? Do the patients like it? Those are very, very good questions because that's exactly the conversation I will have with my patients. I think the biggest downside of PRP is the discomfort. You know, from other aspects, um, it's a safe treatment. Um, a lot of people like it because it's sort of biologically focused and people kind of like that sort of natural approach to therapy. But you do have to do several injections. You know, you want to kind of cover the entire sort of vertex or crown top part of the scalp where the hair thinning is occurring. And so you'll typically do several injection points about a centimeter or two um, separate from one another. So I always tell patients, I'm not going to tell you how many injections I'm, I'm giving you into your scalp because you probably don't want to know, but it is a lot, probably, you know, 40 to 50 injection points. Now, the good news that I, I will say is that we have learned to provide better analgesia to our patients. What we actually do is what's called a scalp block where we will use lidocaine to numb up the nerves that actually supply the scalp. And although that obviously is painful to do a, a nerve block, it's far fewer injections than, you know, the number I've alluded to that we would need to do across the top of the scalp. You know, that being said, our patients all come back. You know, I have patients that are, are coming on a regular basis and they don't like it. It is uncomfortable, but uh, they get through it. Just to circle back about the number of injections, it's usually a series of three that we will do as an induction. And when I say three, it really means three sessions. And at each session, we'll do a number of injection points into the scalp. And then we'll usually wait, you know, four to six months, see if the patient is a good responder. If they are, they might continue some kind of maintenance treatment down the road. We're working very hard as a team to try and innovate and make the procedure as painless and as tolerable as we possibly can. And so uh, as the, the practice evolves, and so this is a relatively new practice as we've been discussing, and I think that in addition to innovating on the therapeutic side with demonstrating uh, safety and efficacy, it also gives us the opportunity to innovate on the procedural side and make this uh, more comfortable and tolerable for the patient uh, as the practice evolves. So during one setting, you could be you could be using how much of plasma are you injecting during one session? The patient has to come in the morning, and I presume you have to take the blood and take out the plasma and the and concentrate the platelets. So there's a process even before the patient does this. So I guess it's a whole day process. Actually, not at all. Um, we've got it down to probably takes about an hour, not much longer from start to finish. Um, you know, when we did our study, it was a, it was a lot longer, but basically, um, and Shane can speak to how the regenerative suites are set up, but the patient comes right in, we spin the plasma right there and then at the point of care. And so while the plasma is spinning, we'll do the scalp block, come right in and then um, inject. Shane raises a good point about the, the discomfort of the procedure. Cause you know, I'm thinking back really to when we started our study and during our study, we actually did not use any analgesia other than 
cool air. We had a cool air machine that does help to cool the scalp, but we didn't use any lidocaine at all because we wanted to be sure that we didn't have any interaction or adverse effects by mixing lidocaine with the, with the platelets. So those patients all got through the study. It, it, you know, it was a little uncomfortable for them, but as I said, subsequently, what we've done is we actually called in our colleagues in anesthesia and said, teach us how to numb up the scalp in a, in a good way because we know anesthesia, they do surgery you know, with patients awake and, and managing to, to work on their scalp. So we figured there's got to be a better way to do it. And that's why we, um, as Shane said, innovated and came up with the process of doing a nerve block, which has made a, a big difference to the discomfort of the procedure. So in one setting, how much of plasma are you injecting? Is it how much CC or ML? You have a rough estimate in the three, three sets of injections that you're giving? Yes, it's, a, it's about five CCs. You start off drawing, I think it's about 50 or 60 cc's of whole blood. Um, and then by the time it's all spun down, you come out with about uh, five cc's, which are then injected. So as you said that you have to follow these patients up down the line, you really see a change around six months and beyond. So how do you support your patient? And how do you show that progress is being made during the time that you are monitoring the patient? Yes, your study is... As you said, your study went for almost six months. Was that correct? It was a year in total. Yeah, the study, the actual yeah. active part was six months, but we continued to follow the follow. for the six months. And so at the end of the year is when you are, you can tell your patients and really see the benefit. What, yep. what was so, the objective numbers like? Number-wise, what was the effective numbers? There's a lot of variability between patients. And there's really two ways of that we, we assess the improvement. We, we take photographs, before and after photographs, and try and take them as similarly as possible. We make sure we part the hair in the middle and have them positioned in the same way and so on so that you can see, see if there's been um, an observable improvement. But that's a very sort of cursory way of being able to assess that. So what we've now done for our patients is we actually use the TRICA scan, which is that computerized photography of the hair follicles that Shane alluded to. Because we've got that from our study, we actually use that still in our patients to, to validate whether there's been an increase in the number of hair follicles. And just to give you round figures, as I said, there, there is some variable but usually I tell patients to anticipate probably a 10 to 15% increase in the number of hair follicles. So, you know, I, I do tell them you're not going to turn into Rapunzel. You're not going to have so much hair that, you know, you're going to struggle to cut it. But we're really hoping for a visible improvement. You were talking about that um, uh, just the other day, actually, and how uh, profound even that 15% uh, improvement could be. And you mentioned earlier about the um, similarities between our practice in orthopedics and, and dermatology. This is one area where they diverge. We're using uh, similar products, but uh, when you're talking about pain and uh, tendon regeneration, a 15% improvement uh, for a torn tendon is not going to be very good for patients. But then on the other hand, in uh, the dermatologic practice and in a, a serious condition like androgenetic alopecia, where it's a progressive condition and patients are going to continue to lose hair, having hair rejuvenation or regeneration on the order of 15% is really quite profound. Uh, and I think that uh, is one of the reasons why the patients do continue to come back for this treatment because they, they recognize how valuable that can be. You did studies on the satisfaction rates, and as you were following them, you found that with 15%, I have had patients exactly like you're saying, the improvement, like I will take the example of pain, have just improved when I ask them a number, they say, well, 15%, uh, they, maybe they'll say, 
in a scale of zero to 10, I was at 10. Now I am at four or five. But when it comes to percentage, they say, well, I'm 300% better or 400% better because it's made such a dramatic uh, change in their life. So when they see hair growing, how's the satisfaction? Do they start feeling more positive? I know it's still evolving, but how are they feeling? Well, you know, I'll give you a sense of, of, of my, my take on this treatment. Um, and there's a few points to be made here. Remember, we talked right early on that if we leave this process alone, it's progressive and gets worse over time. So setting goals of, of treatment is, is important. Um, and realistically, even stabilizing the process and preventing further loss is important. So, um, and this is what's so great about PRP is it not only stabilizes, because a lot of patients will come in and say, if I can just hold on to the hair I've got now, I'll be happy. I just don't want to lose anymore. I don't want to get bald. So if you can offer them something that even stops that, I think that's already a, um, you know, a big plus. And if you can even then see an incremental improvement, you know, 10, 15, 20%, that is going to be huge for women because don't forget the flip side of that. When a woman loses 10 to 15% of her hair, all of a sudden, you bet she's coming in banging on your door saying, you got to help me here. I'm losing hair. So, you know, the flip side is even though the gains are modest and we'd, we'd like to have bigger numbers, I'm sure we'd all like to double our volume of hair. Realistically, that amount of improvement has brought a great amount of joy to our patients. And I have another patient who was actually involved in the study and sent us a thank you card afterwards to say, you know, thank you for allowing me to participate in the study. She said, you have truly changed my life. She said, I've, I've tried so many treatments that really did nothing and that were just hard to use or had side effects. And she said, this has been amazing. And, you know, so she's continued now even post the study to receive treatment. So, you know, we have a big cohort now. We've only been doing this for about two or three years, but we have a big cohort of people who come in regularly for maintenance PRP, you know, one, one to two times a year that seem very happy. Like anything, it's not for everybody. Um, some people are going to say, I'm not going to spend the money if I'm only going to get a modest improvement. Other people are going to be thrilled to bits that there's, you know, even something that can, can provide some positive relief from, from this condition. I know this is uh, pretty new in the process. So, is it something that they have to come year after year for five or 10 years? Or do you see that after maybe three, four, five years of this kind of intermittent once or twice a year treatment, you would be able to tell them that um, this is it, uh, the hair is going, not going to go any further, or do they just keep continuing saying, well, I'm seeing progress and we don't stop. Do we have a, just an estimate of what the future would look like? I don't know for sure that we can um, have a crystal ball as to what we're going to see, you know, five, 10 years down the road. My sense, and I'd be interested to know what Shane's impression on this is, we kind of interfering with mother nature. You know, mother nature has pre-programmed you for genetic reasons or whatever to, to thin out over time. And I think anytime we try to put a stop to aging and we try to interfere with mother nature, it would be great if it was a one and done deal. But I think the reality is you probably need some sort of um, ongoing treatment. Now, again, if you complement PRP with other treatments like minoxidil or potentially a systemic therapy, can you get more sustained benefit? Can it last longer? Those are all interesting things that I think you know, time will tell. Shane, I don't know if you have any comments or thoughts on that. Well, I, I would simply take the opportunity to promote um, our program in uh, Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative Medicine and some of the other initiatives that we've embarked on. And one of them is a, an outcomes registry 
which really needs to be done uh, for just about any novel therapy, uh, regenerative medicine or otherwise. And we've seen this for years in orthopedics and orthopedic surgery when you look at joint replacement and things of that nature. And so uh, for a lot of treatments, you can only truly determine the long-term uh, potential after following patients for a long period of time. And so comes registry uh, that is supported by the institution and uh, our patients who receive uh, treatment with platelet-rich plasma for hair loss, both men and women, uh, we're gonna track them for uh, long periods of time and add to our understanding of uh, what the natural history of this condition is and how platelet-rich plasma can modify the natural history uh, over the course of many years. And so that's gonna be uh, hopefully patients uh, that get PRP or maybe patients that get PRP for a little while and combine that with standard of care. We really want to be able to track uh, every patient that comes through this program to be able to add additional scientific understanding over and above what you would even normally get from a randomized control trial. So it looks like uh, you're fortunate to have you. It looks like you needed, an, as they say, you need an entire village to raise a child. Um, we need a huge army of you, the world's best, to take care of a patient, which is great. But there are so many more patients who cannot come to Mayo Clinic. Are there other academic centers uh, with similar capability which you foresee are they already doing it? Are you foreseeing the future? You can do it because right now there's a lot more patients who probably will benefit from it and need help. Or are they coming to you and learning this technique and going back? Or on the cautionary side, do you want to say, no, you stick with the major centers, get this process done because as you mentioned, you have registry, you're following up, you're doing a very thorough um, and meticulous uh, post-procedure -fo post follow-up. What kind of recommendation do I need to give in the front line? Uh, and if I'm not working in Mayo Clinic, I'm in other clinic, what kind of recommendation do I need to give my patients? Well, I think we can probably both answer this one. I, I'll tell you from uh, my perspective, uh, the, the field, the fund of knowledge is growing with respect to platelet-rich plasma and uh, dermatologic and, and cosmetic applications. We like to think that we've taken a very uh, scientific and rigorous approach to it. And so in addition to applying it in our practice, we are studying it. Uh, we're following patients. Having um, quality standard operating procedures uh, and quality controls are probably the most important thing uh, in performing the procedure safely. And then, um, as Allison mentioned, fortunately, it's not that complicated uh, from a time perspective uh, to perform the procedure. And so with the you know, appropriate education, the appropriate training, you would see more facilities and certainly more practices being able to offer this to the patient. That's certainly what we hope to see. I don't think uh, we really intend for this only to be performed at major uh, medical centers. And uh, Allison is, of course, involved in resident education. And um, this is an opportunity for our residents and fellows who uh, come through Mayo Clinic to learn these procedures and, and take them with uh, them in, into their practice. Uh, would you agree, Allison? Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. Um, you, you know, I think it would be nice to see more standardization in the scientific world because PRP is very much an umbrella term. There's many different ways in which it's spun and prepared and various additives that go into it and so on. So I, I think, 
you know, and, and you can certainly buy centrifuges. Many dermatologists out in private practice will buy a centrifuge and spend their PRP and so on. So I think you just have to be a little bit careful of, um, you know, as, as Shane said, it's not that we only recommend doing it in, in academic senses, but you do want to be careful about the um, reputation of where you're receiving the, the PRP because um, there obviously is some variability and we you, you're probably not you know, well set just to go to anybody who's got a centrifuge and saying, oh, hey, I spend PRP, let me inject it. Mm -hmm. um, that's obviously important to, to consider. And then it would be nice in the scientific world to see more standardization in the literature. And I think there are attempts to do that now where they, you know, looking at more standard numbers of platelets and, and, and standard preparation techniques and so on. And most of the um, rigorous journals will kind of really look to see how the PRP is, is prepared and processed. So one of the questions which uh, my patients would like to know is, is this covered by insurance or is it right now considered experiment, experimental and it's self-pay? Yeah, commonly right now, it's not covered by insurance, which, which means very similar to a lot of cosmetic procedures in, uh, in medicine that the patient is responsible uh, to cover the cost. But that's, a, that's another reason uh, why we're working really hard on the science uh, because the more evidence you can deliver to government payers and to private insurers, the more it becomes part of routine medical care and uh, may uh, at some point get uh, medical coverage because this is a, it's a serious medical condition. An additional note on cost is that most PRP uh, is manufactured using disposable kits that are supplied commercially at considerable expense. And um, in our program, uh, we can manufacture the platelet-rich plasma using our own simple laboratory supplies and without having to purchase an expensive kit. And that helps us control the cost considerably. Uh, and so this is just another example of where the science and the innovation can help bring these treatments to the patient, uh, even in the absence of um, insurance coverage for the time being. I would just clarify that, um, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't regard this treatment as experimental. I think the reason that it's not covered by insurance is more because it falls under the category of cosmetic. Um, but I think that there's certainly enough data that's come out in the literature over the last several years showing that this is an effective treatment. Um, no doubt about that. You know, there may be some unanswered questions. Is Does it work for everybody? Probably not. You know, I typically have moved away from offering the treatment to people who mostly bald. I think you still have to have a, a decent amount of hair to try and get some growth growing in the declining hair follicles. So yeah, there are some variabilities that we still need to figure out. But I would say that um, you know it's definitely not experimental it's just more in the cosmetic realm which uh, is is probably one of the reasons they the insurers push away from covering it but I agree with um, Shane completely you know this is a very debilitating problem for people um, as I said you know I've got 18 year olds 21 year olds um, that are in tears over this condition and it's embarrassing for them so I, I do think that we really should push now that we're starting to have more data come out in the literature to support this treatment we really should push the insurers to start uh, covering this under the umbrella of um, a medical necessity or medical need I would completely agree with both of you that this is not cosmetic I have I have patients, for example, hypothyroid patients, severely hypothyroid, where the cosmesis is completely gone. They look different, the hair is falling, the skin is different, and then I give the thyroid medicine and everything is better. So it's not just cosmesis. The same thing with androgenetic alopecia. This is one of the treatments, like 
any other treatment in the cases of high blood pressure or diabetes. There are many medicines and some work better than other for a particular patients. And so just because one works better than the other doesn't mean the other medicine is experimental. This is probably ultimately going to be a required and essential. And I, and I congratulate both of you in your mission to push hard for these patients and all the, I am on the human side of the story. You just mentioned all the kudos that you're getting from the patient. And this is just unbelievable uh, how you're altering lives by doing this research. So I thank you very much. We're getting to the end of uh, what we are talking today, or what we talked today with the platelet-rich plasmas and it's used in androgenetic alopecia with Dr. Allison Bruce and Dr. Shane Sapiro. It just shows that when collaboration happens, uh, wonderful things happen when you have wonderful scientists get up there, put their mind in from using platelets to uh, fixing torn tendons to having an orthopedics person in a dermatology research trying to go here. That's just an amazing, it's a mind blowing thing for me. Uh, so what we learned is this is the new kid in the block, platelet-rich plasma. Most more, um, our team here is doing fantastic job. We have some of the best people who are studying this all the time. And there is hope for our patients with androgenetic alopecia. And that's just, just terrific news. Before I wrap up, is there any last words of wisdom or uh, advice you would have, have for providers or patients on this issue? You know, this is such an exciting field as a dermatologist. Um, you know, the whole concept of, of regenerative therapy, I think, is, is something that is just super exciting, whether it's looking at wound healing, tissue regeneration, hair growth, skin rejuvenation. There's a world of opportunity, and I'm, I'm just uh, thankful that I've been able to intersect with people like Shane who are, who are exploring the science and trying to push the frontiers of, of what we can do to unleash um, you know, the body's healing capacity to, to help us. And I, I would probably echo those sentiments, though, from the other side. As we talk all the time in regenerative medicine, we really need to partner with physician champions. Um, uh, they're the experts uh, in their particular field. Tongue-in-cheek to say that uh, orthopedists are treating dermatologic conditions. I'm really not. Uh, our area of expertise is just on the, you know, in the manufacturing and, and delivery side of novel regenerative therapies, but you have to have that expert in uh, the clinical science who really understands the disease condition and the, the way that we're going to treat these conditions in order to, uh, to have an adequate uh, scientific partnership and, and get these treatments to patients in need. Thank you, Dr. Bruce and uh, Dr. Shapiro. For us working in the front line with the patients, you have given not only the patients hope, but all of us hope saying that now we have many other choices which we can offer to the patient. Uh, they've got fed up of us telling, we can't do it anymore, this is all you can do. Uh, now there's, there's a real new world of uh, PRP opening up. So thank you very much uh, for your time and I hope you keep doing your great work and we'll probably come back later, maybe in a couple of years to find out how your study is going and how wonderfully you're able to help our patients. Uh, if you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic uh, podcast, please subscribe. And uh, in the current uh, time, stay healthy and see you next week.